Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Andrew and I'm joined with Josiah and today we're going to talk about the Bible, specifically Matthew chapter 13. Is that correct, Josiah? That's right. Well, last week we began our discussion on Matthew chapter 13. So if you haven't listened to last week's podcast or sermon, I encourage you to go check those out. But we started that podcast acknowledging that Jesus at this point in the book of Matthew sort of switched his tactics a little bit and he started teaching in parables so as to reveal mysteries or secrets about the kingdom only to those who believed that he was actually the messianic king. So he stopped saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he started keeping information only to his closest followers and kind of in that way blocking out those who had rejected him, the leaders of Israel in the first century. Well, this past Sunday, we talked about parable number two of eight in this section of parables, and I'm wondering if we can start today by just briefly recapping the parable itself, as well as it's one of those unique ones where Jesus himself offers an explanation. Maybe we can talk about that as well. Yeah, to piggyback on what you said before, sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we break the scriptures up into chunks that we can preach through or talk through, and we lose sight of the whole. When you say that Jesus is changing his tactics, that's definitely true, but it becomes more obvious as we keep reading in Matthew. In fact, as we go into chapters 14 and 15, we see Matthew recording this verb that Jesus withdrew, and he withdrew. And that's the first time that he's really done that in Matthew's gospel. Why is he pulling away from the crowds? Why is it, They're following him, but he's pulling away. And we see him turn more toward his disciples than the crowds. And he starts training them and equipping them for what lies ahead. And so these parables are the first evidence, I guess, the first indication that something has changed, that he's turning now inward to prepare the 12 for things that were unforeseen to this point. And as you say that, my mind immediately goes back to like Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when he's also teaching his disciples, but also to this massive crowd who's listening. Whereas here, it's very much, as you say, kind of the opposite. Like it says they went inside and he taught them or explained the parable. Yeah, that's right. Well, we come to this second parable as you teed us up for, and it is famously called the tares among the wheat or the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the darnel, depending on the translation that you have. And Jesus, like with the sower, he tells the story. And then later on with his disciples, he explains it upon their request. And so when he tells the story, it's basically a farmer. He is sowing seed sowing wheat in his field like a farmer would do this landowner but it says that at nighttime he has an enemy that comes and sows weeds among his previously planted wheat and we know from the context that these two things grow together and the genius of this this subterfuge is that the weeds the darnel and the wheat look exactly the same in the early stages and so it's not until the wheat starts opening up that the workers would say hang on a second some of this isn't opening up it's not wheat and they realize that it's actually darnel and so at that point they come running to the master and they say what happened here where did this plot come from where are the these weeds among the wheat and right away the landowner says my enemy did this and the next question is what do we do now like it's already started to grow. The the roots under the soil are all entangled together. And the servants say, should we pull them up? Should we start uh, going amidst the wheat and pulling up the weeds so it has to save them? And the landowner shrewdly and rightly says, no, leave them until harvest. Leave them until the wheat is ready to be harvested as well. And then cut it all down. We'll sort it and we'll deal with it then. 
And so he's pointing forward to this future time of harvest. They're going to have to be patient. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, there's going to be weeds and it's going to be more work. You, know, you got to sort out. You think if those weeds weren't there, the, the harvesters, the reapers would come along and they just bind all up all the good crop and that would be it. But now they have to sort it and they have to throw some into the fire and gather others in the barn. Well, it's taking valuable nutrients away from the wheat that's growing. That's right. Well. Yeah, that as well. Yeah. yeah. Look at you showing your your agricultural shops. I did grow up with farms on four, <laughs> three of the four sides around me when I grew up. So <laughs> No, he goes to interpret it. The disciples later on, they ask, can you tell us what this specific parable means? Apparently some of the other ones they understood. This one was causing them uh, some consternation, as I said, on Sunday. And so they ask and he obliges because he's already said that to them it has been given the privilege of knowing the mysteries of the kingdom. And that I noticed specifically, it says that in chapter 13, verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And that's when his disciples came to him. So they were away from the crowds right. now for the explanation. That's right. And he right off the bat gives kind of a cast list or a, an answer key to the parable. In verses 37 and following, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So himself, he's mm -hmm. the sower, the landowner. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom or the inheritors of the kingdom. So those who believe. Those who believe, those who will one day walk in the kingdom as citizens of that kingdom. Mm -hmm. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So basically he's saying that this is a new time. He's introducing this new time where there's going to be weeds growing in and among the wheat. There's going to be sons of the kingdom and sons of the enemy growing at the same time. And what you're going to ask next probably is what is the mystery that's being revealed here? Because that's the whole point of these parables, mm -hmm. right? He's revealing new truths about the kingdom program, God's kingdom program, but he's revealing it in such a way that some will understand, those who have ears to hear, those who believe in him, and some do not have ears to hear. They don't understand. And he's saying it in the presence of all, and yet only a select few will fully grasp it. Well, yeah, so that's that's really was my next question is what is the mystery? And you're, you're alluding to it there. It's that judgment is coming, but it will be delayed. The kingdom is not at hand anymore. Yeah, it's going to be delayed. And so for these first century Jews, they understood and rightly understood as you read the Old Testament that when the king came, when this messianic figure came to them, he would bring judgment and then a perfect kingdom. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were longing for, this kingdom of shalom and prosperity with the lion and the lamb laying down together, everything made as it should be. But obviously to have a kingdom like that, you need to deal with the evil in the world. So judgment would precede it. And the king was going to bring this. And Jesus comes and he says, the king is here, but guess what? This judgment and hence the kingdom is going to be delayed. And that's something for first century Jews, they would have known nothing of. That would have been shocking to them. Because specifically at this time, they would have been expecting this king to come offering physical deliverance from the Romans, Absolutely. the people who had taken over them and oppressing them. They wanted, as I always say, kind of that white horse riding, vanquishing king, the, yeah. like the David of old, who was a war hero to come in and free them and set up this incredible physical earthly kingdom. And as you rightly said, he offered it to yeah. them, yeah. not in the way they were picturing, but he offered that kingdom to them. And ultimately it's because of their rejection that it was then delayed. And so here the mystery, I think, is what you're saying is the judgment as well mm -hmm. is not immediate. As we can see, evil is still thriving everywhere. Yes, that's right. And so today, just one example of how this would have been a shock to them, a mystery revealed. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, which I read on Sunday, which is a very famous prophecy of this coming kingdom, it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, Christmas card, perfect. That's exactly what we read at Christmas time, right? And the government will rest on his shoulders, the kingdom, the government will rest on this child's shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, notice that it's a physical place. They knew where the throne of David was. It's mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, right? And on the throne of David and over his, David's kingdom, there's Second Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant enlisted right there to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. There's that perfection from then on and forevermore. So this is what they're expecting. They read in the Old Testament and they rightly understand a child is coming. He's going to run the government and he's going to run it perfectly from Jerusalem, there's going to be peace forevermore. And he's going to judge, bring righteousness and justice. That's what they're anticipating. Now, what would you say to someone if someone pointed at this as a contradiction of saying, well, Isaiah, these prophecies prophesied a coming king. Jesus came and didn't bring what was promised. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that that's a misunderstanding of the word contradiction. Sure. <laughs> that's certainly not a contradiction. Sure. Just because all the details are not exposed in that first prophecy doesn't mean there's a contradiction. It just means that there's progress of revelation. Mm -hmm. And so when we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, what the Jews didn't understand, and I said this on Sunday as well, is that there is a big gap between for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and then there's a long gap, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Both of those things are going to be true. And that's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 13. The harvest is still coming. There still will be judgment, and there still will be this everlasting kingdom from Jerusalem on David's throne. That's going to happen. And the child did come. But what you didn't see in the Old Testament because it wasn't revealed, it was a mystery. And I'm telling you now is that there's a long gap. There's a big gap. There's two comings of Christ. They didn't know that. Mm -hmm. We know that. But there's two comings of Christ. And in between those two comings, his first coming as a child when he's rejected, his second coming when he doesn't come as a child but as a warrior and sets up that kingdom. In between those two comings, there is this time when the enemy has sown tares among the wheat. And the Lord, to protect his wheat, is allowing them to grow together because he doesn't want to damage any of his precious sons of the kingdom. And this is being revealed to the the disciples at that time. Mm -hmm. And so we might say a promise delayed is not a promise broken. Yeah. You know, or just because part of the promise is coming later does not mean that this is not fulfilled prophecy. It's fulfilled in in part and more is coming. Yeah, this it's really important to understand the progress of revelation. That's a very important doctrine to know that things are progressively uncovered as we go through the canon of scripture. And that when we go to the Old Testament, guess what? Genesis 3, when it talks about a a serpent crushing seed that's going to come, someone that's going to come to step on the head of the serpent, that doesn't give us a whole lot of details, right? But as we go through the Bible, more and more details are added. It's not that Genesis 3 was wrong or contradictory. No, it's it's being elucidated as you go through Scripture. And we come to the New Testament, Jesus even more is bringing more and more light to these prophecies. What we see with especially Messianic prophecies, and we've used this illustration, I think, on the podcast before, is that when Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or whoever are prophesying, it's as though Israel is looking at this one mountain peak off in the distance. And as time passes and as you walk toward this mountain peak and as you get closer and closer, you start to see that there's actually two mountain peaks as you get closer. And there, there's actually a, quite a distance between the two, right? So not only do you see this one mountain peak, the coming of Christ, and he's to set up this kingdom. As you walk closer, Jesus says, there's actually two mountain peaks and there's a huge valley between the two where tares and wheat grow together. And so again, not contradictory at all. It's just this progress of revelation that we need to lean on. 
So given this idea of delayed kingdom, delayed judgment, as we've said, would have been a huge deal, would have been a big shock and a change from what was expected from the original hearers. I wonder if it's maybe harder for us to grasp the importance now as Christians who have only ever known the fact that Christ is still yet to come. His kingdom is still coming in the future. It doesn't seem like a big mystery being revealed to us now. We Mm kind of get that commentator narrator viewpoint externally to see, oh, this is a big mystery revealed to them, but we've already known this. So what do we do with a parable or section of scripture like this that is meant something huge to the original audience, but maybe on the surface seems less relevant or less important to us now? What, like, how do we handle that? Yeah, first, I think mean, we need to check ourselves, just realize that something doesn't have to be shocking to be true. Like, yeah. Why does it have to be continually shocking? I See, learned huge. Yeah, I learned things as a child that were amazing at the time, world-shaping at the time, that now are not shocking. They shouldn't be shocking. In fact, for an adult to be shocked by some of the things that shocked a 10-year-old is kind of sad. Yeah. And so I don't think it has to be shocking to be useful, to still convict us and show us God's hand and show us God's character and realign us with his will and teach us his ways. Yes, I think it can be and was shocking and paradigm-shifting for first-century Israel for us who have lived in that valley between the two mountains and have known nothing else and who look back over the progress of Revelation and see what God was doing, I don't think it has to be shocking to be educational. And the point isn't that it was shocking. The point is still the point. The truth is still the truth. That's right. Even if it seems more benign, even if it seems less fascinating to us. I mean, we look back at any book of the Bible, Nehemiah or Esther, at the time, people read that and said, this was amazing, like what God was doing behind the scenes and providentially preserving a remnant of his people by miraculous means, using foreign kings, amazing things. We look back a long ways from there in many different ways, culturally, certainly chronologically, we're a long ways from there. And it's not as shocking to us. And maybe we've even, even read it a few times, and so it's even less shocking still. Sure. But it's not to say that when we read Esther or Nehemiah, we can't still see And be reminded of God's goodness, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his providence, and on and on we go. And it's not that that we can't still learn things about ourselves, about the fallenness of humanity, about the cycles of sin in in judges, and and just be reminded of those truths. It doesn't have to be shocking to be shaping. Hmm, That's good. You could put that on a... Put that on like a mug or something. Yeah, it should go in a mug, yeah. Yeah. Some (laughs) t-shirts. Word processing merch, now available. No, it's not. (laughs) Well, on Sunday, you ended by giving us something to know, something to pray, and something to hope uh, in response to this passage. And I'm wondering if maybe we can end today by discussing what it looks like to practically allow that knowledge, that prayer, that hope to drive us. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the practical outworking of -hmm. biblical hope? I know we've talked about this before, but I don't think it can be reminded of enough in in days like today with what's going on. What does it look like to be inspired by the the you are here knowledge and Mm -hmm. the prayer for safety and protection and the the hope of Christ coming once again? Sure. Let's go through them one at a time. First implication, the first implication I offered was something for us to know, and that is where we are in God's program, in his the progress of Revelation, certainly, but also in his redemptive plan. We are between these two comings, these two mountaintops. And most of us know that, right? We are very aware that we look back at Christmas time. Hopefully that's not the only time, but we look back at Christmas time <laughs> to the incarnation. Sure. And we look forward to the second coming. We are living between those two realities. But sometimes it's helpful to be reminded 
because sometimes we confuse our language. And when we confuse our language and where we are in God's plan of redemption, we confuse our mission. We confuse what we're supposed to do. We confuse our assignment. And when you have a confused assignment, not a lot gets done, right? When the church starts thinking that they're doing all of these things that they're not supposed to be doing, we end up doing a whole lot of nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's good to once in a while just allow the scriptures to resituate us in our you are here moment in salvation history. What are we called to do? We are not called to ushering the kingdom, to do kingdom work. We're not called to do any of that, to bring about the kingdom, advance the kingdom, whatever kingdom language we want to use. No, no, the kingdom was offered. It has been removed. It will one day come. The king will bring the kingdom. Fancy mm -hmm. that. The king will bring it at the time that he decides. In the meantime, and Matthew will get to this as we go through his gospel account, we are to make disciples of all nations with the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Again, as I mentioned on Sunday, if we want to drape that in kingdom language, we can say we are to make, by the power of the gospel, future kingdom inhabitants. But we're not ushering in a kingdom right now. And so just to be very clear on what we are called to do and what we are not called to do can sometimes be helpful. It's really preparing, I guess, for the kingdom if we need to use that language still. Sure. Expecting the kingdom, oh. thy kingdom come. And and as you say, I like that idea of, you know, future kingdom citizens. Yeah, yeah it's not thy kingdom come reign progressively in my heart or reign among us spiritually or anything like that. No, literally, thy kingdom come. Mm -hmm. Like literally split the skies, bring about judgment and your kingdom. That's what we're calling for. Yeah. Now, I do want him to reign in my heart. I do want to progressively become submitted to Christ as my Lord. But that's a whole different issue. They're connected, but they are different. And so we just want to be very clear with what we're called to do. And it's sometimes helpful, again, to resituate ourselves because it affects the way we think about God, the way we talk about God, and the way we go about God's work. Especially when we it, we are given all this information, especially in Matthew's gospel and in these parables, like what the kingdom will look like mm -hmm. and the idea that somehow we can make the world more into that. I mean, that sounds great on the surface. It sounds pretty idyllic. If we can have an impact and make the world more like the kingdom will be, mm -hmm. awesome. But is that our task that we are given, I mm -hmm. think, is the question. Yeah, and a very practical outworking of a wrong understanding of the kingdom, I think, is that if we understand ourselves to be advancing the kingdom agenda in this world. And I spend my whole life, if the Lord tarries, doing this and wanting to kingdomize Oakville and kingdomize Canada and make it more submissive to Christ and all of those types of things. I'm going to be very disappointed come the end of my life because I'm probably going to look around Oakville, look around Canada, look around the world and be like, this is no more like the kingdom I read about in scripture than it was when I was born. In fact, <laughs> given the way things are going, it's probably worse. Mm -hmm. It's probably the other direction. We yeah. yeah, if history tells us anything, it's that we drift towards sinfulness and it takes a massive catastrophic event to right the ship and bring mm -hmm. us back toward godliness. And so we never drift toward godliness as far as, as a culture goes. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. And so we are becoming progressively anti-kingdom, if we want to put it that way. So again, there's some discouragement at stake, perhaps. And again, yeah. I, we can protect against that just by rightly situating ourselves. You are here in God's kingdom program. Yeah, I was going to say that can sound really depressing, Ugh. and yet it's obviously not. So keep keep us going. Keep yeah, us moving right. in the right direction here. Okay, so in the meantime, we're between these two mountain peaks. I give us something to pray. Here's a practical implication. Protect us, Lord. It's, it's, it's the call of his people to protect us. We are wheat living in a field in the world, which he defines in that parable, among tares. There's and I, weeds with roots wrapped around us. Absolutely. And sometimes they're indistinguishable. You can't yeah. really tell the difference between the two. And the enemy has sown those things. And so because 
I'm not very smart, and I'm going to speak for you and say that you're not very smart either. We can't always tell who are the tares and who are the wheat. We're going to have to rely on the Lord to protect us. And we're so thankful that he's allowing us, and he's guarding us by not uprooting it all at once. He's not bringing us home prematurely. He's allowing it to all grow together, and in his timing, he'll deal with it. But for now, we just need his protection. And in the first century, I think the Pharisees were a perfect example of these tares in that they looked like the religious people. You know, they looked like the heads of the nation, and they really were, sure. but they were planted there by Satan to oppose, climactically, to op- oppose the Messianic king, but also to be stumbling blocks, as he says in the parable, to God's people from coming to him in faith. And the way the story itself, the analogy, the illustration works out is even once the weeds are distinguishable from the wheat, it's still left until that time of harvest. Mm-hmm. So those roots are still choking out, taking resources, yeah. etc., mm-hmm. interspersed amongst the wheat. Yeah. So we just need to ask for protection. And I, I'm, I trust that most of our listeners do. Lord, protect me, protect my family, protect our kids, protect the vulnerable people in our communities, because there are agents of the enemy out there to trip us up, to steal our nutrients, to take what we need and to strangle us, to choke us out. And uh, the Keep tares, us from growing, really. Yeah, and the tares were poisonous. It was a poisonous weed. And so uh, the tares in this world are poisonous as well. So we mm-hmm. want to be cautious. And then moving forward to the idea of hope. Let's yeah. talk hope. So something to hope. Justice is coming. Yes. We're between these two mountain peaks, but we know there is a second mountain peak. We know that the king is going to come. We know that he is going to judge. The harvest is coming. And we can wait in that. There is something in all of us because of the image of God, the residual image of God, even those who don't believe, there is something in us that aches for justice. And those apart from God define justice maybe in some weird ways. Uh, They pursue it in some weird ways as well. Even some of those who are with God. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And, And by God's common grace, sometimes people who are apart from God do actually pursue good, just things. But the point is, there's something in us that longs for justice whether we can define it or not. And a justice that we are not going to be able to accomplish in our yeah. own strength. And God's people, we just know, we have that hope, this future certainty, this this clinging to a reality that is going to come because God said it would and he cannot lie that justice is coming. And how does that affect how we live? Well, it gives us an eternal perspective. You know, in the chaos of this world, it's pretty easy to get depressed and to have the wind taken out of our sails and to just want to throw our hands up in the air and give up and be like, mm-hmm. why bother? This is a train wreck. This is a dumpster fire, this world. Why would I bother doing anything? And God says, listen, it's my world. Justice is coming. Hang on, just do the next right thing. Be faithful to the task I've given you. Know where you are in my history of redemption. I am coming and pray for my coming. And so that can give us hope to endure knowing that God has the final word. The harvest is coming, there will be a sorting, and we will be rewarded as God's righteous people. And that can allow us to persevere through tough times. And in the meantime, our job is to grow, our job is to share the gospel, to be good stewards, and as you, I think, rightly have said here, do what we have actually been called to do. Mm -hmm. And be aware of what's around us, be praying for those around us, and, and do our job. And part of that job is to understand the importance of the local church and to help one another. This is a onslaught out there of tares coming for the wheat. We need one another. We need one another for encouragement, for camaraderie, for commiseration. We need one another to give us a word to build us back up sometimes when the world has got the final word this week in my life and I'm feeling pretty deflated. I need a brother or sister in Christ to come in and lift me up in prayer and point me back to that justice, that hope that I have to remind me of where I am in God's program. We need one another. Hmm. This church is a 
or the church in general is, we use this metaphor often, an army barracks and an army hospital. We come in, we get healed up, and we get sent back out. We get trained, we get sent back out into the front lines to be soldiers for the Lord, to bring his gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, to be lights shining in darkness. Uh, but that takes a community. We need one another. To be a, a solo soldier, to be a all by ourselves out there is a dangerous place to be, and it's very ineffective. Well, it's a bit of a heavy topic, but an encouraging word to end on, Josiah. So I thank you for helping us understand this a little more practically and, and walking us through this today. And listener, we're with you on the front lines. We're, we're preparing and heading back out into the world, and we pray that God would be our strength through it all. And until we meet again, go and be with God and be blessed. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.